0: Thanks for clicking play on PageCast, a book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers. In this episode, journalist and author Andrew Harding interviews Justice Malala about his new book, The Plot to Save South Africa. Today, it seems as if the defeat of apartheid was inevitable, but Chris Harney's assassination on the Easter weekend of 1993 nearly took the country into all-out war. Now, best-selling Justice Malala takes the story of the week that followed the ANC Firebrand's murder by Janusz Wallace in riveting, cinematic fashion. In this meticulously researched book, the reader is taken into the thought processes and consequential actions of the key players, from Nelson Mandela, F.W. de Klerk, the police investigating the murder, dangerous right-wingers like Clive Derby-Lewis, and the leaders such as Cyril Ramaphosa, Banti Holomisa, and Tokio Sehwane. On the 30th anniversary of Hani's death, this book tells us just how close South Africa came to civil war and how Mandela and de Klerk, despite provocation and despite their own fears, failures, and doubts, chose the path of peace. We hope you enjoy this episode of PageCast.
1: Hi, everyone. My name's Andrew Harding. I'm a journalist uh, with the BBC, uh, currently based in Johannesburg. I've been here for 14 years. Before that, I was uh, in uh, Kenya, in Asia, and for a decade in the former Soviet Union. Um, I'm also a a writer and author of a book about Somalia, one set here in South Africa, and another coming up uh, about Ukraine. Um, I am very fortunate to have Good friend and wonderful colleague and journalist, Justice Malala, here to chat to. In fact, he's not here. He's in New York. Justice, if you don't know him, is and has been for some time one of South Africa's foremost columnists, journalists and authority really on the struggles that, particularly the political struggles that South Africa has been going through for for some years now. Uh, He's chronicled that in a series of columns on television and elsewhere, and in his book, uh, We Have Now Begun Our descent, But he has chosen now for his next book, his new book, to talk about something from the past, from 30 years ago, in fact, and a week that very nearly destroyed South Africa's very difficult transition from apartheid to democracy back in 1993. A week in which a huge amount happened and a huge amount didn't happen. Stuff that could easily have, as I say, plunged this country into civil war. And justice, I guess. My first question is, could, could you give us a, a little bit of a summary of what that week was and what happened and what didn 't happen
2: sure thanks so much andrew i 'm really looking forward to your book i 'm a great admirer of your work uh, for a very long time so it 's a great pleasure for me to be with you here and to to talk a bit about my book, but I really look forward to to hearing more and reading uh, about your upcoming book uh, after two excellent books that you've you 've released um, the the week of 10th april was was one of those where a country stands at the edge and 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 one which for south africa in 1993 was was really pivotal for its future what had what had happened was that nelson mandela had been released from prison in february 1990 Um, The liberation movements, the ANC, PAC, SACP, ASAPO and others, had been unbanned by FWD cleric on uh, February 2, 1990. Uh, The negotiations had started haltingly in March that year. The armed struggle by the ANC had been suspended in late uh, 1990. But the negotiations were mired in controversy and in stops and starts. These men, and it was largely men, only the ANC uh, had, had women delegates mainly. Um, um, they would meet and there'd be agreements and they would fall apart. Uh, in 1992, there was a massive massacre of people in Subuking. Uh The ANC walked out of those negotiations. Uh, There had been other stops and starts. Nelson Mandela's relationship with F.W. de Klerk had fallen apart. And so outside of the negotiations themselves, thousands of people were dying in political violence. Um, um, Thousands of people were caught up in attacks, sinister attacks, by what we know now to have been government-sponsored attacks on communities, instigation of fights or differences between, for example, IFP supporting hostile dwellers and and communities in townships like Zubouké. So essentially, South Africa was a tinderbox. On that day, 10th of April 1993, a right-wing extremist racist aligned to the Conservative Party and the AWB got up from his uh, flat in Pretoria, his apartment, got in his car, drove to Johannesburg. And as he had been planning for a long time, alongside a member of parliament of the Conservative Party, Clive W. Lewis, he drove to Dawn Park, where one of the ANC's leading lights, in fact, the most popular politician in South Africa after Nelson Mandela himself, Chris Hani, lived. He had staked him out in the past, had done so for months. He went to his house, saw him uh, walk out, get in his car, drive to the local mall, buy a newspaper and drive back to his house. He took a, a shortcut, went to the house, waited for him. As Chris Honey got out of his car, he followed him into his yard and said, Mr. Honey." When Trishani turned around, his 13 year old daughter was standing at the door. Uh, Janusz Walus shot him twice on his chest and shot him twice in the head, and Trishani died. The intent of the assassins was to spark racial warfare, uh, to spark riots and protests on such an unprecedented scale that the army would step in. Uh, would get rid of civilian rule, or rather white civilian rule, essentially get rid of F.W. De Klerk and his cabinet declare a state of emergency, basically reset South Africa to 1978, 1972, to the height of apartheid rule in the country. So this was the intent. Janus Valus and Clave w. were not were not wrong by surmising that this would happen. Within minutes, within hours of that happening. South Africa was engulfed by protests, by angry young people who said, what happens now when our hero is murdered in this manner? What is the meaning of negotiations? Many ANC leaders were saying, we can't go on in this, in this kind of fashion. And maybe it's time to uh, stop negotiating. It's time to go back perhaps to war, to armed conflict.
1: And let me come in there, Justice, just to explain to people who, who may feel that this is a work of history and, and very detailed, which it is. And it's incredibly detailed research that you've done to bring all these threads together. But you need to know, people listening to this, that it reads like a movie script. It is done hour by hour, minute by minute, reconstructed from all these different perspectives in a very, very dramatic way. And so it it wears its learning lightly, in a sense, although it also not just focuses on the murder itself and the aftermath, but also, I I think, another key moment that came, was it six or seven days later? Uh Possibly... Three days later, Mandela's speech, in fact, there were a number of speeches and people get confused, but there was another key moment after the killing when it seemed that Mandela himself and his extraordinary power and charisma and above all leadership seem to, to turn the tide away from the threat of civil war. T- tell us a bit about it.
2: Yes, that. thank you. I, I, absolutely. Um, just a, a segue. Um, thank you for that comment about how the story is told. You're absolutely right. I wanted to write a piece of history, but I was there as well. It was my first day as a journalist in the newsroom at the Star. I was a cadet. I'd been in a classroom. It used to be a very rigorous journalism reporting program. So you'd sit downstairs um, in the classroom and write and write and write. Every day you did some writing, a lot of writing, in fact. It was a fantastic piece of journalism training. And because it was Easter weekend and so many of the senior journalists went off to their uh, families' weekend hideaways. Nelson Mandela was had left Johannesburg, was in Kunu that weekend. F.W. de Klerk was at his grandmother's farm in the Karoo, uh, and so forth. So a huge number of people had left town. Uh, Chris Hahn himself had said to his three bodyguards, look, guys, there won't be any work. Just go home and see your families.
1: And there's a very amazing moment about Mandela out in the countryside learning about the death of a man who was almost like a son to him, very, very close Absolutely. to Chris Hani, and that he learnt of his death and then had to go outside almost immediately and meet a group of a visiting delegation, yeah. and not betray, because, because of this, I suppose what he's absorbed in prison, and you get into this later in the book, the kind of self-discipline oh. uh, that, he, that he'd learned o- over the course of his life, he didn't betray any emotions he carried on with his duties yeah
2: absolutely um you know this was the south africans who follow rugby it was the border rugby team and when mandela was in kunu you know there would always be people popping in and so forth and this rugby team had decided we have to meet mandela so you have mandela he's sitting down has just had breakfast is working with someone who was helping him on his biography uh autobiography long walk to freedom and he gets told, "No, there are all these beefy men who had just arrived in a Kumbi, and so he goes outside and starts greeting them and is going, "Hello, how are you?" and so forth." When the housekeeper comes outside and says, "Mr. Mandela, you absolutely have to come to the phone." So he goes inside, takes the call from Barbara Masighella, who was his chief of staff at the time, and then walks outside without saying anything comes uh, all that and continues with the duty of greeting these men saying nice things to them then he goes back inside and and that's when he says we have a disaster on our hands i've got to get to work but the key the key thing i wanted to do was you know i was taught history very badly as a kid at school it was the most boring thing to read history it was always what happened on the 10th uh, of blah, 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 you know, the Boer War passed many of us by because the teaching was so dry, so, so lacking in personality, um, so lacking in, in detail and, and context and so much else. So part of what I was trying to do and what you picked up with the telling was to try and write it in the kind of way that gripped me as, as a child. So I veered a lot towards fiction because fiction could grab you and take you along, but as I got older and and you know got into journalism, loved, I wanted to write these stories in a way that that hopefully my my children, that young people anywhere would say, "Whoa, did you read this? Did this happen? I didn't know this happened," and so forth. So part of the writing was was an exercise to exercise my own. I regret really that my history, my history is a bit patchy, my, my my South African history, and that's largely because it was told in such a uh, such a boring, if you will, fashion. And I don't think history is that way. History is so full of full of characters, of people who are loud and quiet, or all sorts of things. So so that was part of the attempt to tell the story this way. And and in the book, I actually went and spoke to uh, Muntli Gungubele, who is now uh, the Minister of Communications, has recently been the Minister and the Presidency of Cyril Ramaphosa. Muntli um, Gungubele was one of the first people to arrive on the scene. Uh, he was, in fact, waiting at his house for Chris Hani to come and pick him up, and, and they were going to go to a hair salon and then on to to uh, watch a football match and through his eyes i tried to tell there were several stories so a lot of people uh, will tell you that mandela gave an amazing speech on the day of the assassination itself even mandela in his book F. W. de Klerk a lot of people who were around that day in fact i mean i have to confess in my mind's eye i had this idea that oh yeah i remember the speech But the speech we remember is actually delivered three days later. The first speech Mandela delivered was on the day itself. He got on a plane from Umtata, as it was called at the time, arrived in Johannesburg, was given a speech by Paolo Jordan, who was the head of ANC Communications at the time. Uh, He got in a car, went straight to the SABC. By the time he got there, it was past 10 p.m. Many people didn't actually hear that speech, the speech itself, Mandela read it in a very halting manner. He couldn't actually read from the cue; It was a bit far from him, and he had uh, serious eye problems. It went nowhere. No one heard it. No one uh, listened to it. No one, It was a dad as a as a speech. But that's the speech that everyone talks about, keeps on saying, no, Mandela gave an amazing speech. Mandela realized that, no, this speech didn't really go anywhere. So he... He then said, no, I'd like to do this again and go on television again. And there was a big fight between the ANC and the SABC and the government, which felt that the SABC and government said, you've had your chance. You've, you've had your goal. You can't, you can't have another uh, live broadcast with just you speaking to camera. He said, no, I've got to do it. So that speech, Mandela actually participated in its writing. A draft was given to him. He changed the top three lines, and those are the lines that really went to the heart of what had
1: happened. Every man and woman.
2: Exactly. The, the, the key part of that speech, the key part of the murder, of the assassination, was that, was that South Africa is made up of black and white. Black hates white, white hates black, and it was an attempt to exploit the history, the, the racial divisions of that time. And so Mandela used that speech to to defang, if you will, what Walush and Clive W. Lewis and whoever else uh, were trying to do. He said, it's the speech in which he started off, uh, I'm reaching out to every uh, man and woman from the bottom of my heart. Then he says, a white man full of hate came to our country and killed one of our beloved sons. Then he says, a white woman saw this and had the presence of mind to take down the registration number. And by so doing, this man was arrested within minutes of this assassination. And by putting those two uh, together, by contrasting that, this white man full of hate, this white woman who does the right thing, calls the cops and so forth. You know, in the book, I go through her call to the police station. There's a transcript of it. Uh, and And you see what he's doing there is saying, "This was a deliberate attempt to put us to war, and let's defeat that And he goes on to say that, and that was really the speech that made it clear what was happening here, and the message started going out even more powerfully let's defeat. Those attempting to do this to to the country by not falling into the trap, and I think from that day onwards things began to change. other pivotal moments came along, but that was a decisive point in the in the week's events
1: And what's fascinating as well in the structure of the book is that it, it, as well as being a drama and, and very cinematic it, it also ends with, with a note of mystery because. This was clearly something that was more than a lone gunman. We know there was one man behind him, but as you suggest very powerfully and is clear, senior figures in the white minority government knew a lot more about this than was ever revealed. And in the process of, of sort of explaining that, you know, it's very clear the contrast between the sort of self-assurance that Mandela displayed as a leader, particularly at the time when he understood that there was so much anger, that that anger needed to be expressed, and if there was violence with that, that was also understandable and needed to be allowed to sort of run its course. Whereas de Klerk, on the other hand, just displayed such pettiness and such poor judgment about the moment and the stakes. And then that leads you on to this idea that actually the cover-up, the failure of those involved in this plot to ever take responsibility or or to ever admit to it?
2: Yeah, look, there are so many questions about the murder of Trishani and and those continue. We've never really, in my view, got to a proper investigation that once and for all, if that's possible uh, in these things, answers these questions. The police investigation that I sort of detailed was very weird in itself. The security branch, which had been used against political opponents, was brought in. The case was essentially put together by the case against Valush and uh, Clive W. Lewis was put together by the security branch. And they were convicted and went to jail. Uh, we know Clive W. Lewis has died. Uh, Janus Valush is on parole, is out on parole now. But there are many, many other questions. The people around them behaved very, very suspiciously. Uh, there were many other questions raised by all sorts of other people. So the the investigation is one element that remains a mystery. And I, I try to ask the questions. I don't have many of the answers. But if, if you probe and, and, and go into those questions, you begin to... You sit there and say, oh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but really, this is damn suspicious. So, <laughs> you know, the, the, the key question also remains why the Truth and Reconciliation Commission left so much of this as unfinished business. Whatever happened to the investigation of the TRC into this, it was never, there. Were, there was talk of reports, uh, which I never uh, uh, got hold of, that were done and really never went anywhere. So the questions are huge. But on the leadership issue with F.W. de Klerk and Nelson Mandela, it's extraordinary what happens to de Klerk in that week because his first act on the first day after the murder is one of actually amazing leadership, that he he has this conversation with Mandela the two men agree that Mandela is the, is the de facto president. De um, Klerk cannot do anything. He admits that if I say anything, it, things will get worse. So he steps back, and that stepping back is significant. It's a significant leadership moment, in my view, that says, yes, I know my limitations. I know that I can't be the person here. To do this. And then he starts panicking. Uh, he calls a meeting of the State Security Council. He goes on television and says Mandela has lost control of his followers. He displays an incredible sense of a failure of empathy uh, to understand that people are justifiably angry at what has happened. People are suspicious. He speaks the language of securitization of control control you've got to control your people whereas mandela says what are you going to do the most popular politician leader in south africa has been murdered and people you can't say people must sit in their homes allow them to march allow them to to vent to give show their emotion by going to marches, to commemorations and so forth. You can't ban these things. Whereas the says you have to shut down on all these things. So you see the difference in the leadership. You see the differences in their outlook. And, and sadly for the he becomes even more strident. And by the time the funeral happens, nine days later, the Democratic Party at the time in Parliament says it's Monday. The parliament is sitting Chris Hani's funeral is at 2 p.m. You need to cancel the sitting or request the cancel the cancellation of the sitting of Parliament so that we can, as a Parliament, say we empathise. The clerk says no. He goes to Parliament and gives a speech in which he says Mandela has lost control and so forth and so forth. And it, I, I think it's one of the saddest times. Uh, the saddest displays of his leadership or lack of leadership in that week—that he could not even find it in himself to be empathetic to the family, to himself, to the nation, to the many South Africans and people across the globe. Actually, just you know, there were there must have been two hundred plus, two hundred thousand plus people in and around that stadium, but declared saw it as just this rabid, violent uh, people. And he basically walked away from leadership in that in that time. And the contrast between him at the beginning and him at the end of this week is is stark.
1: And yet the the killing and the aftermath did actually spur crucial political progress towards elections.
2: Absolutely. And Ditlerg was part of that as well, in a in a in a weird kind of way. So so one of the lucky breaks I got in writing this book was um was uh, being given a set of notes um, of the State Security Council meeting that was held on the 15th of April, so five days after the killing of Hani, The State Security Council was an extraordinary body. That, that's, this is the, the mini cabinet that ran South Africa during the states of emergency, during the hard days of the security um, the security clamp down. So 22 men in a room in the union buildings. And in that meeting, the ANC has said we we want nothing less than a an election date. And they don't actually come out of that day saying this is the election date. They say, oh, you know, we, are, we want to give you an election date, but we can't do it. We've got to speak to other people, Mangope and Witelezi uh, and so forth and so forth. But that that day was the first agreement that, yes, we will agree as soon as we all sit down, we will agree on an election day. And the second thing was that, and Dietlerk has written this in his biography, that the meeting instructs Ulf Mayer to say to the ANC, we'll agree to a transitional body. Uh, and that is basically a body that would take over... Overseeing the SABC, uh, the uh, security structures, and so forth, essentially ensuring that that we have a free and fair election, that that the national party is not overseeing the election and contesting at the same time, and it's a it's a longstanding demand of the ANC that 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 playing field be be level, and that was the beginning of that, and that TEC at the conclusion of the book said. In December 1993. So two key things that led to April 27, 1994 happened in that week. And it was the agreement to announce an election date as soon as possible as the meetings, uh, the negotiators sat down and the TEC in that week.
1: I know you've been working on this book for, for a long, long time. I am curious though, I, just reading one of your latest columns, which is talking about today South Africa moving towards sort of failed state territory. I wonder whether going back 30 years is in part an act of escapism to go back to an era when there was really extraordinary leadership and, and, and the stakes were so high, but also we knew things were going, to, going in the right direction in retrospect. Or whether, and it's probably both, I know, but or whether you actually see this story as being something that needs to be told now because the lessons mm. from then are, are, are so port- so important for today's South Africa. Yeah,
2: I think the lessons are important for today's South Africa, but for the world as well. I think, you know, Andrew, you've reported from all over the world, You you, you pop into uh into ukraine every so often you've done amazing work there you're bringing out your book about ukraine moscow the u.s i think these are the world is in a phase in a period where where the divides are so huge and there is a certain level of despair about can we get through this can we how does this pan out? And I think, I think part of what happened in that week, part of the leadership that happened in that week was the realization that, that the divide can be so huge that it can destroy both sides of, of the conflict. Um, and I think part of leadership is realizing that maybe it's time to work together to do this. There is an element of leadership in that week that that hasn't been written about and that I I haven't emphasized enough. And that that level of leadership was ordinary cops, ANC leaders in Gauteng, now uh, Johannesburg PWV area at the time, and uh, members of the National Peace Accord. These three elements came together and said, one, the police are part of the problem. So on the day of the funeral, in the times around the funeral, the police were supposed to hold back. The ANC's marshals were given. It's extraordinary thinking about it today, but the, ANC, the ANC's marshals and, and lawyers aligned, even, not even aligned to the ANC, but lawyers and uh, law firms were given the power to, to effect arrests uh, together with these ANC marshals so that peace could be held. So what they did in that small period is say the people may not want the police here, but people want peace and want this funeral to be concluded in a dignified, peaceful manner. And so you had a collaboration at an extraordinary level in which officialdom recognized its own uh, failings, its own inabilities and said, yes, in this case, you you can do this better than I can and you had a relatively peaceful funeral that day. So so I wanted to show a bit of that. I wanted to show a bit of the leadership that that we are all at various levels capable of. Is it an act of escapism? Not really. I do I mean the conversation is interesting, you know, as South Africa us on the brink of stage eight load shedding, and and the language, and the, the, we are all scared. We are all worried about the country and so forth. And and a lot of people are using the expression "failed state," and you can't point fingers at them and say, "Oh, you are you're a liar, you're this and so forth." There is much that is wrong, but I think we can pull back from that. I still believe that there is the possibility to to change. The reality that we in, and I think I think in 1993, 1994, in that period, we changed, we changed the course of history, and I'd like to believe that we can now as well. So I'd like to hold out this book as an example of what we, of how wonderful and how amazing and how how innovative as a country we've been in the past, and that we should be proud of it, and that we can do it again. So I think these stories need to be told for that reason primarily, that we can do better um, and that this is not the end. We can still turn this thing around.
1: The book is called The Plot to Save South Africa. Justice, it's extraordinary work. There's so much effort, so much thought, so much empathy, so much anger and so much skill in the telling of it. Congratulations, it's an extraordinary piece of work. And I hope it gets a huge, huge audience. Thank you so much for talking to Thank
2: me. you so much, Andrew. And thank you for, for having been with me right from the beginning uh, uh, as I was thinking about it. And here we are today. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.